If you've got your copy of God's Word, and I pray that you do, would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a text I think I've, I've, I think I've preached like two or three times here, um, but it's such a rich text. Uh, and not only that, but I, I want to see this in the context of what we have been viewing in our series this week. And this week we'll be talking about seeking our joy and serving and loving others. And all the VBS workers are like, really? <laughs> you're you're going to preach about this now after the week we just had? Yes, I am. Um, so uh, if you found your place in God's word in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, would you do me the honor of standing as we read God's word together uh, understanding and acknowledging that God has spoken to us with his word, right? I saw a, what's it called? I think it's called a meme. Is that what it's called? Uh, I saw a meme this week with a guy sitting there uh, saying, why won't God speak to me? And he's holding his Bible open because <laughs> friends, the Bible is how God speaks to us, right? Amen. He has decided to speak to us, his children. Let's hear together what he has for us uh, to hear. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we... We join our voices with the saints of heaven and cry, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. For he has redeemed us to God by his blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He has made us kings and priests to our God that we should reign upon the earth. Lord, you have lavished blessings upon your people through the majestic King Jesus. Rightly have you exalted him and given him that name that is above every other name. And though we are sinners, by your great mercy, you have sent us in love a Savior. You've made known to us a great salvation. For you so love that world that you gave your only Son for our sins and made him a light to the Gentiles. So Father, we pray that that light might shine in and through us, that we might have grace and we might find joy in reproducing that light and manifesting your grace to an unloving and a needy world. We ask it for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated.
Well, if you heard last night, um, even though July 4th is next Sunday, Callahan is already celebrating um, as our neighbors uh, decided to kick off the fireworks celebration a week early, uh, which is fine. It reminded me of something I, I know this week, that our country was founded on the principle of the pursuit of happiness, wasn't it? We know that. It appears in our country's founding documents. But, but let me ask you a question. When you look around this world, do you see people pursuing happiness? Do you, would you mark our nation as a happy nation? How well are we doing in our pursuit? Happiness has proven elusive even after two centuries of trying by this great and dedicated nation. In fact, more and more, I find people around my age having a bit of what they call a crisis because after so many years, they've expected to find happiness and they haven't. We call that a midlife crisis, don't we? Men buy a toupee, a sports car, chase their glory days. Many people who feel the strength of their life slipping away make a radical alteration in order to seek anything that they think will bring them joy, happiness, satisfaction, or fulfillment. Well, what's the solution to this? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. You see, in every believer, there is this mighty river of the spirit of God. A torrent of grace divine that flows from him to us and through us into the world around us. The Holy Spirit, when he converts us, makes us new creatures, fills us, and brings us everlasting joy into these empty shells we call lives. So if you today have not yet found the Savior, I definitely pray that you will pay careful attention to the words that I speak, as I am, as Paul said, a worker for your joy. Thus far in our series this summer, we've seen the central importance of this theme in our Christian life and faith. The joy of the Lord, which is to be our strength. We're commanded in to rejoice always in the Lord. We're told, delight yourself in the Lord. In fact, as we saw last week, worship itself is frequently described in the Bible in this one word, rejoice, rejoicing. Too often, we believe the wicked lie that, that happiness lies in one direction and holiness in the other. That's the lie of the devil from the very beginning in the garden. That God is withholding happiness from you when the Bible constantly teaches us that these are the same pursuits. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever are at the same end. Christians, therefore, have a holy obligation to be as happy as they can, to find full delight in the Lord, to have solid joys and lasting treasures which none but Zion's children know. 
So our thesis of this series is if you try to abandon your pursuit of full and lasting joy, then you can neither please God nor love people. And so I'm going to put that into our big idea for today's text and today's topic. My big idea today is unless you are seeking the fullest, greatest joy, you cannot rightly please God or serve people. Unless you are seeking the fullest, greatest joy, you cannot rightly please God or serve people. Now, some people might say, that, that's not right. A Christian should not pursue joy. A Christian should pursue obedience, and joy should just be the happy return of that. It may be, but friends, that's not true. That's pointing these things into totally different directions. It's like saying, don't eat apples, eat fruit. Joy is an act of obedience. Delight yourself in the Lord is not optional. Coming before him to rejoice is not given as simply the hopeful result of your duty. Now listen, clearly you are to obey whether you feel like it or not. Don't get me wrong. I simply want to point out to you that our obedience is commanded to be done in joyful delight. All of it. Many of you will know George Mueller, that great founder of orphanages and advocate for missions from the previous centuries, one of my heroes. After he learned some of these things, he wrote these words. He said, the first and great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about is not how much I might serve the Lord, how much I might glorify the Lord, but how much I might get my soul into a happy state in the Lord. How my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might seek in other ways to behave myself as becomes a child of God in this world. And yet not being happy in the Lord, it is all in vain. What I hope to do today is teach you is the pursuit of the greatest happiness, which is only to be found in loving, joyful service to the Lord and others. It is not an either-or proposition here. Now, obviously, if you know me whatsoever, you know that I'm only a student of this, not a master. But from all that God has said, I can speak truthfully that it is the most ennobling, elevating, soul-expanding thing to gain freedom from self-centeredness and self-serving. So if you're, you're, you're visiting with us and you haven't heard the introduction to this, when I speak of pursuing our own happiness, I'm not talking about in a total self-serving, self-centered way that has no reference to God or to others. It's the exact opposite. God says, by looking to me, by loving others for my sake, you will find the greatest joy. This is the way God himself loves. He loves... Because he delights to love. Love is not, as some teach, a dispassionate commitment to another's good. Love is a passionate commitment in the Bible. A commitment that is not satisfied within us until we have blessed another and have reproduced the love of the Lord. Jeremiah 9.24 expresses this beautifully. Jeremiah 9.24, the Lord says, I am the Lord. 
exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. He delights in loving kindness. He delights in mercy. He must show loving kindness and he must have joy in it. It is his nature. It's his character. And so he's created us for this same purpose. Now in the passage before us, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth concerning the collection of the poor in, for the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, we know these people were particularly hard-pressed. In fact, culturally, if you were a widow, the way you would take care of yourself is by traveling into Jerusalem and the church of Jerusalem would care for the widows. So, so Paul is encouraging a Gentile church to gather a collection for those in Jerusalem who were hard-pressed by things like famine and persecution. And he, he tells this Gentile church to choose one person to go with him to present this offering personally to their Jewish brethren as a way not only to take care of the poor, but to deepen the bond of love between Jew and Gentile in these times of tension. So Paul tells them, he tells them of this remarkable work of God's grace among those in Macedonia, which he hopes will inspire the Corinthians to have that same spirit among them. And the clear implication is that the Macedonians' generosity is a model which in verse 7 says they are to abound to or aspire to reach. So by recounting their earnest love, Paul is trying to stir up the Corinthians to a generous love. And through the Spirit of God, those of us who read 2 Corinthians 8 are also to be stirred up into a spirit of genuine love. But the question I have before us that I want to answer this morning is, what is it that made the Macedonians' generosity such an act of genuine love? Why would Paul want to use these as an example here? What made this act of generosity, such a genuine act of love. I want to speak to that in three points to you this morning. Number one is because it is a work of divine grace. It is a work of divine grace. This generosity, this genuine loving service of these Macedonian people, it was the result of a work of divine grace. Read verse 1 again with me of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at this. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you what? The grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Uh, the loving generosity you see from the Macedonians was not of human origin. Now, what's interesting is if you remember down in verse 3, the Bible does say, yes, they gave according to their own ability. But, but as we've seen from previous studies, the grace of God is what changes the heart. The grace of God is what makes the heart willing to love the Lord and willing to walk in his ways. And so there's no conflict whatsoever between the fact that it is the grace of God and yet according to their own ability. For Paul says their willingness was the gift of God and the work of his grace. And so if you're suspicious that I haven't really handled that text properly, let me point your eyes down to verses 16 and 17 of this very same chapter, and you'll see a perfect example of this. This is a remarkable marriage between these two things. Look at what God says. Paul writes, but thanks be to God, look at this, who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. Who puts the earnest care into Titus? God does. Verse 17 then, for he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. Same phrase. 
the loving generosity you see of the, the Macedonians. It, it, you get this? God put it into the heart of Titus. The same earnest care that he put into the Macedonians. So Titus said, okay, not only is he eager to serve, but he's eager to serve of his own will. So, so Titus, because of God's grace, would no longer be happy unless he could go and serve them. No, I, I want to go. Please don't restrain me from going, Paul. It's my delight to serve. Do not withhold that from me. Do you see the difference that grace makes? A joyfulness that will not be satisfied until it serves others. There's this willingness, a, a desire, this gift of God's work of grace. Something for which we are to not take credit for. Something of which we cannot say is any sort of repayment of hope of return. Now God does repay and reward uh, us generously, doesn't he? Of course he does. But the point is there was this new desire of pleasure that God had given that we begin to delight in caring for others. This was the grace of God to the Macedonians, their joy. Now, friends, I, I realize many in the church take another approach. We serve and we give and we love merely out of our duty. It is your responsibility to serve others. It's your job to give to their needs. Well, look, that's all true. And the Bible does speak of such things, and I'm not ashamed to say that it does. But the point is... As we talked about in our kids' time, how you do it is important. We're not to give reluctantly or under compulsion because what does God love? God loves a cheerful giver. God's grace motivates us to abound in love, to abound in kindness and service and generosity cheerfully in response to his grace to us. So if your only response to a biblical appeal is simply to say, well, okay, I'll just, I'll do my duty, then you're not focused on God's grace. And honestly, presumably the reason why you don't invest in others, you don't invest your time or your money or service is because you think you'd be happier if you kept these things to yourselves. Honestly, you follow what I'm saying? Why else would you keep it? If you really thought you would be happier giving your time, your money, your service to others rather than to yourself, you would do it. Because we all seek happiness by nature. Well, the Bible says by God's grace, there is a far greater happiness than self-serving. And namely, it's a life of loving, affectionate, joyful ministry to others, which is how our Lord himself gives to us. Such ministry, it's the embodiment of the incarnation of Christ, isn't it? The greatest act of grace of all. And so if you do not have joy, any joy, in the duty, perhaps you're not focused on God's grace, you're focused on something else. See, Paul makes his point here in verse 9. Someone becoming poor so that others becoming rich is how our salvation happened. It was through Christ's joyful, willing, self-giving that we have come to live for others. No Christian could see the rightness of a life like that and not want to reproduce it themselves. To have this overflowing from the lives of all of God's people. And so what made the Macedonians 
Macedonians' generosity such a genuine act, an act of genuine love? First, friends, it was because it was a work of divine grace. But it leads me to a second point. Second thing is, is that the experience of God's grace, that experience itself, it then filled the Macedonians with joy. The experience of God's grace filled the Macedonians with joy. It was a joyful thing to have this joyful desire. Put your eyes on verse 2 with me. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. They had an abundance of joy. Well, why? Had God prospered them financially? No, certainly not. They had just the opposite, extreme poverty. Was it because the circumstances in their life had become so pleasant to them? No, he says they were under a severe test of affliction. The abundance of the joy they experienced, as we've seen so far, was not anchored anywhere on earth. There was a joy inexpressible and full of glory. A joy in God and the experience of his grace. This is what is behind Paul's explanation of how they were giving in verse 5. How they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Here we find this secret pathway to finding true joy and blessing others. You know, let's be honest. There, there are many, many service and relief agencies out there doing really fine work, aren't there? Where all sorts of people, Christian and non-Christian, are able to serve others and finding joy and fulfillment. That's wonderful. But you know what the difference is? What happens to you when people are ungrateful, rude, complain, deceive you, or oppose you, take advantage of you? Such things happen, and when they do, you lose your joy. When you are in a severe test of affliction... When you find that you have no more to give, you are in extreme poverty. And then you say, well, I can't give of myself. I can't serve others. I don't have anything myself. What about my circumstances? See, something very different happened here among the Macedonians. In such circumstances, extreme generosity. If you lose your joy in serving others... It's because you have not given yourselves again first to the Lord and then to others by the will of God, as it says here. Your joy must be in sharing Christ's life, Christ's love, and Christ's service. Which, by the way, came with many tears. Which, by the way, came and involved betrayal. Yet we must keep our eyes to him. Habakkuk is able to say, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. This is the experience of joy. It is rooted in God's grace. If by grace we have joy in him, it doesn't matter if we have any money. It doesn't matter if we go through a hard time. As the Macedonians were, because love is by nature extravagant. It aspires to more. It reaches for more. It says, I will give all that I have because I want to. And it's not happy and satisfied 
until it brings happiness to others. That's the third thing I want you to examine this morning. What was it that made the Macedonians' generosity such a genuine act of love? Well, it was a work of divine grace, and that work of divine grace filled the Macedonians with joy. But then look what happened. Their, their joy in God's grace overflowed in generosity to meet the needs of others. Their joy in God's grace overflowed in generosity to meet the needs of others. Their abundance of joy overflowed, verse 2, in a wealth of generosity. Look at verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 say, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. In this case of giving, look at this. Did you notice that? In this case of giving, who did the begging? They did. Not Paul. They were the ones begging. The gifts were only the overflow of the gift of themselves to the Lord. It was their joy. See, that's love. Love only wishes there were more to give to others. This is what the Macedonians proved. Had they had more, they would have given it too. For it was out of love, not mere duty, not jealousy, not fear, that they had such giving. Now, hear this. Paul doesn't set up the Macedonians as a model of love because they sacrificed in order to meet the needs of others. I mean, it's great to say, oh, what a sacrifice, but that's not his point. What he stresses here is how much they loved doing this because of the delight and joy they had in God. They, like God, delighted to show mercy to others. Remember Micah 6, 8? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? These people loved mercy. They didn't have anything to give. They were having a terrible time. And yet, what were they doing? Begging earnestly, imploring with much urgency, can we please show mercy? The book that we're going through, Desiring God, says this. He says, they found their pleasure in channeling the grace of God through their poverty to the poverty in Jerusalem. Love is the overflow of joy in God. It is not duty for duty's sake, or right for right's sake. It's not resolute abandoning of one's own good with a view solely to the good of another person. It's first a deeply satisfying experience of sharing that grace with another person. When poverty-stricken Macedonians beg Paul for the privilege of giving money to other poor saints, we may assume that this is not just what they ought to do or have to do, it's their joy an extension of their joy in God. To be sure, they are denying themselves whatever pleasures or comforts they could have from the money they gave away, but the joy of extending God's grace to others is far better reward than anything money can buy. They say money can't buy you love, but did you know it also can't buy you joy? What I have, I want to give. Why? Because I want to have joy. Now, we find the same confirmation uh, in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Just go ahead and flip over there for me. One page over in mine. 
In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, Paul says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, cheerful giver, cheerful servants. Let me ask you, in your service, just think about the responsibilities you have at First Baptist Church of Great Gables. Would cheerful be a way I describe those services? Would, would cheerful be the way you describe those services? Think about all that you give here. And this is, as we've seen this week, even through your children, this is a incredibly giving church. But remember, God is concerned not just with what we do, but how we do it. Would you define yourself as a cheerful giver? Would you look at these opportunities we have before us and see them more as responsibilities or opportunities for joy? Now, I suppose it is better to give out of duty than to not give. But he doesn't say in chapter 9 that he loves reluctant givers. You who are parents, right? As we talked about our kids' time, you know what it's like when you've given your children some task to do and it's done out of duty. But reluctantly, with no joy, right? The feet are dragging, the mouth is going mile a minute, but the child is doing it. He has no self-interest in it whatsoever, no delight in themselves. What a poor obedience this is. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. You can give everything, but where is the heart, Paul says? Parents, again, you know how unimpressed we are with the obedience of our children when it is so begrudging, unwilling, and insincere. But when their obedience is from the heart, we're pleased. If we don't care whether we do a good deed cheerfully or not, then we're indifferent to what pleases God. In fact, it wasn't too long ago, I, I really should stop using illustrations with my kids because they're going to be um, older soon. Uh, but it wasn't too long ago where we... Um, went out to dinner in Amelia Island, and of course, if you've ever been to a page dinner, you know our kids just flat out don't eat, all right? It's a war. Every single meal is a battle, okay, um, where we have to continually fight for them to take one bite. Bubba is, um, is a hoarder. He's a, he, he holds it in his cheek. I guess he watches too much baseball, um, but he, he just holds it in his cheek continually and doesn't chew. Well, he was having a particularly hard time at the dinner table um, at Cantina Louie, I think we went to that night, and, uh, and we were going to go to ice cream for dessert at Danucci's. If you've ever been to Danucci's, it's great. Um, and so I was trying to bribe him. Bubba, eat your food. If you eat your food, you're going to get ice cream. If you don't eat your food, you're not going to get ice cream. And he didn't. He didn't eat his food. And so, as hard as that is, uh, we went to Danucci's and we got ice cream and Addie got hers and Emmett got some to take home for later. And we're sitting there at the table and Addie's eating her ice cream and Emmett is just sitting with complete contentment. He, he's... He's just sitting, enjoying life, looking at his sister, eating her ice cream, and just saying, it's fine with me. And, and of course, I lasted about 10 minutes before I was like, all right, son, eat your ice cream, right? Why? Because he had such contentment when something wasn't given to him, right? 
It, it was joy. He was perfectly joyful not receiving something I knew he loved. So then he got his ice cream. He proceeded to pour it all over the table and then eat it off the outside table. But we have a saying in our house, that's what your liver's for, right? Um, but if we don't care whether we do a good deed cheerfully or not, then we're indifferent to what pleases God. Again, God says it pleases me when we're cheerful. So if God loves joyful, cheerful givers, then this joy in giving, serving, and loving, it's a Christian duty. And the effort not to pursue such cheerfulness will remain in sin. You will be much happier then if you quit serving yourself and serve others. It's the pathway to the true and greatest happiness. Here's how it's taught by John Murray, one of the most prominent theologians of the 20th century. He writes this, he says, There is no conflict between the gratification of desire and the enhancement of man's pleasure on the one hand and fulfillment of God's command on the other. The tension that often exists within us between a sense of duty and wholehearted spontaneity is a tension that arises from sin and a disobedient will. No such tension would have invaded the heart of unfallen man. And the operations of saving grace are directed to the end of removing the tension so that there may be, as there was with man at the beginning, the perfect complementation of duty and pleasure, of commandment and love. Get that? Perfect complementation, duty, pleasure, commandment, love. For the greatest thing that has ever happened in the world, church, has happened to us. The incarnation of the Son of God, an act of joyful, loving service of becoming poor for our sakes. Well, let's wrap this up. In conclusion, what, what then is our great hindrance in loving other people? It's exactly the same one as we've seen in the previous studies. We're far too easily pleased. We go for cheap and unsatisfying delights. The reality is we don't believe Jesus when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. But there is more blessedness, joy, more eternal and lasting pleasure in a life devoted to helping others than there is in a life devoted to our own comfort and self-sacrifice, self-service. So as the book says, the message that needs to be shouted from the houses of high finance is this, secular man, you are not nearly hedonistic enough. Quit being satisfied with the little 5% yields of pleasure that get eaten up by the moth of inflation and the rust of death. Invest in the blue chip, high yield, divinely insured security of heaven. If we listen to our maker, the very longing we have for happiness will drive us right in the direction to a life of love and mercy, not the broken cisterns of American prosperity and entertainment. Now, love and joy, listen to me, is frequently costly. These Macedonians, they had so little that what they had truly cost them. Love and joy is costly. It always involves some sort of self-denial. It sometimes even demands sufferings. But the point is, believe the Lord when he says the pain is outweighed by the gain. There is a rare and wonderful species of joy that flourishes in the rainy atmosphere of suffering for his namesake. Uh, the book says this. I love this. There are mountain climbers who have spent sleepless nights on the faces of cliffs. They've lost fingers and toes and sub-zero temperatures and have gone through horrible misery to reach a peak. They say it is harsh and dreadful. But if you ask them why they do it, 
the answer will come back in various forms. There's an exhilaration in the soul that feels so good it is worth all the pain. If this is how it is with mountain climbing, cannot the same be true of love? Is it not rather an indictment of our own worldliness that we are more inclined to sense exhilaration at mountain climbing than at conquering the precipices of unlove in our own lives and in society? Yes, love is often a harsh and dreadful thing. But I do not see how a person who cherishes what is good and admires Jesus can help but feel a sense of joyful exhilaration when, by grace, he is able to love another person. Now, all people outside Christ have the desire to find happiness by overcoming something in their lives and having that sensation of power. But what we're made for is not the thrill of feeling our own power increase. We're made to feel the thrill of God's power increasing. And so once again, it is an indictment of our own worldliness that we find more exhilaration when we conquer an external mountain of granite in our own strength than when we conquer the internal mountain of, God's, of pride and God's strength. Let me say that again. Add, add your hobby in there. It's an indictment of how worldly we are when we feel more exhilaration from, from shooting a buck and providing food for our family than we do conquering lust in our hearts. Really, the reality is, this is what's commanded from us, indeed, that we love one another earnestly from a pure heart. As Corey read for us in Romans 12, let love be without hypocrisy. Be kindly affectionate to one another with a brotherly love. Yes, better to do a duty without joy than not to do it, but don't be satisfied with that. Have in that duty a spirit of repentance for the deadlessness and joylessness of your hearts in so worthy an undertaking as loving service. If you find as you are doing your duty that there is a lack of joy and a lack of spirit of love in your hearts, then confess that as a sin. Don't say it doesn't matter how I feel as long as I do it. That's not true. It matters. Pray earnestly that God would restore the joy of loving service to others. Do what you should do in the hope that as you're doing it, that joy may come. Jesus says, you know where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Your heart will follow your treasure. So he says, invest. So you start to invest yourself in other people and practical love and time and emotion and caring. You start to invest in what you'll find is a willingness. But don't say that love is only an action and that feelings don't count. For love must be without hypocrisy, says the Bible. So you are to do acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Begrudging service will not qualify as genuine love. Recognize that this is a gift of divine grace. Seek it from the Lord. You must at times fight relentlessly for joy. And let me just leave you with this. One of the best pieces of advice I could give you comes from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Learn to preach to yourself rather than listen to yourself. Did you hear that? Learn to preach to yourself rather than listen to yourself. Uh, another good doctor of the soul, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, have you realized most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? When the soul is complaining or grumbling, Stop listening to yourself and start talking to your soul. 
We see this in Psalm 42 and 43, don't we, at the end. Say to yourself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Friends, this is the goal. Joyful, loving service, rooted in the joy of the Lord, overflowing to others along the way. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me? God, our Father, we thank you for the many gifts you've given to us. Gifts by which you bring us to more maturity and fullness in yourself. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We thank you for the love and joy we've received as gracious gifts from you. But we pray that these things might be more and more increased within our hearts. Well, we know the fruit of the Spirit. But too often we find that this is it's a fight. It's a fight for joy, a fight for faith. We pray that as you sent Paul to be workers with them for their joy, so you would surround this place and these people with workers for our joy. We pray that we who have known you and known your love would be known as people who love, who love you, and who love our neighbor as ourselves who show ourselves, therefore, to be the children of the God of love. We pray that you would lead us onward and upward for Christ's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.